Indeed, it is a holy night that we commemorate. The night when the second person of the Godhead, the eternal Son of God, took on flesh, was born, birthed into this world. We sing of the incalculable love of the Son demonstrated towards us, but this Christmas Eve, I want to draw our attention somewhere slightly different, equally important, not just to the love of the Son in the coming into this world and incarnation, but the love of the Father. Think of the gift the Father gave and how the incarnation, the birth of the Lord Jesus, demonstrates for us the love of the Father for us in giving His Son. I'm just going to look briefly at a few points from three verses. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 33. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies it's passages like these, passages like John 3.16, don't focus fundamentally on the love of the Son. The love of the Son is deep, is wide. Paul, Paul wants us to grasp that, and we've sung of that. But as a father, now four times, I can only begin to imagine the depth of love it would take for me to give my son for people like you and me. I can't, I can't grasp such love. And before we look at Romans 8, there's a tie-in, and there is an antecedent story in Scripture that sets this up. God, knowing what He intended to do in saving the world, once tested a man named Abraham. And I just want to read briefly that story, because I think we start to grasp the depth of God's love when we see the smaller picture of Abraham because we, we don't really understand what it means for the Father to be a father. We don't understand what it means for the Son to be a son. So we hear the Father sent His Son. God so loved the world that He gave His unique, one-of-a-kind Son for us. And, and that doesn't really register. But arguing from the lesser to the greater, that the picture of Abraham is a lesser, smaller picture than the love and the commitment of the Father, I think can help, help us get there in grasping God's love for us in the Incarnation. And in Genesis 22, and Romans 8 alludes to this, you'll see, we read this account, very well-known account. And Abraham's test of faith follows four parts. First, we're told he's being tested. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go into the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountain of which I shall tell you. That is a hard word from God. Abraham up to this point had largely done all those things that God required of him. He had believed God. God counted it to him as righteousness. And then out of the blue, we're told as a test, God tells him, take your special, only loved son and give him to me. Abraham amazingly passes this test of faith. We go on and read, so Abraham rose early in the morning. That's, that's just astounding. 
He didn't delay. He didn't put it off for a few weeks. Unlike Jephthah's daughter, he didn't wait two months to mourn the loss of his son. He gets up early the next day, saddled his donkeys, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, now note Abraham's faith here, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And the writer of Hebrews tells us, Abraham doesn't have this all worked out. He knows God has promised through this son, through this specific son, Isaac, his promise and his plan to save the world would come. So Abraham knows Isaac's got to make it back. The author of Hebrews tells us Abraham is thinking, well, maybe he'll raise him from the dead afterwards. It's not the way the story plays out, but Abraham knows God can't lie. He tells the servants, both of us, we will be back. Then he and his son go on. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it and laid it on Isaac, his son. The son of Abraham is carrying the very things that will kill him, supposedly burn him. And Abraham took the burnt offering. Okay, sorry. Stay here. And Abraham took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, and these words, Abraham would not have understood just how they would ring through history. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. You get the answer to that? God will provide a lamb for himself. So they went forth, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar and there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son. You'd imagine at Abraham's advanced age and Abraham's strength to carry the load, Isaac isn't resisting. Isaac's letting his father do this. He would likely win in in a contest of strength with Abraham. Notice the submission of the son. Abraham built the altar, laid the wood in the burnt, and laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, and laid him upon the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. Now, we've studied through the book of Zechariah, and we know who the angel of the Lord is, don't we? Those of you who've, who've been gathering on Sunday mornings with us, the angel of the Lord and is none other in the Old Testament than the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. When you see the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, this is the eternal son before the incarnation. He's called Jesus at the incarnation. He's not called Jesus for eternity past, but he's the son of God for eternity past. Here, the one we now know as Jesus cries out to Abraham, Cries out to Abraham, the angel of the Lord, called to him and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son. He did not withhold his son, his only son. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. 
Behold, before him was a ram caught in a thicket by the horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn. Notice again, this, this person is God. God alone swears by himself because there is no one greater to swear by. If the angel of the Lord is not God, he could swear by God. The angel of the Lord is swearing by himself. Another indication, he is God, the Son. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So, so God has a test for Abraham. And this test sets up in picture... God's provision of a lamb thousands of years later. God calls on an earthly father to give and surrender his only son. And Abraham obeys. And when we read that, especially those of us who are parents, we can only begin to start to grasp the depth of the emotion, the love, the commitment, the anguish, the sorrow entailed in all of this. But Abraham had faith. God would provide a lamb. And God in that instance did provide a lamb. And then, a few thousand years later, John the Baptist points out the very Son of God and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God provided the Lamb then, and then, in the fullness of time, He provided His Son, the sinless Lamb. And so now we read again Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And here's the tie-in with Genesis 22. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The picture of now understand this, the picture of Abraham and Isaac is pointing to, is a small echo of the greater gift of God the Father and His Son. And Paul's logic here hinges upon the implicit assumption that it was difficult, it was costly for the Father to give His Son. It was no small matter. His argument, if God gave us His Son, how will He not also give us all these lesser things? And so Paul wants us to grasp the love of the Father demonstrated in sending His Son. I want you to grasp these four things that Paul says in this passage. What is the meaning of the incarnation? What what does that mean? It means many things. But here in Romans 8, it means at least four things. The Father would give His Son for us. The first thing Paul says it means is that God is for us us. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, we we sung tonight, we mentioned the word Emmanuel, which means God with us. And in in the incarnation, we, we have God with us, but the incarnation itself also tells us, according to Paul, that God is for us. That That is good news. Because understand, if the opposite were true, if God were against us, that would be the worst possible news imaginable. 
to know that God is against you and omnipotent, omniscient. He knows everything. He can do everything. He is everywhere. This one whose will cannot be thwarted is against you. There is no escape. There is no recourse. There is no withstanding. And because of our sin, the Bible tells us from beginning to end, in in a very real sense, God is against us. God, God, according to the Psalms, hates the sinner night and day. And yet God's wrath at our sin, and, and understand this is a just wrath, because each and every one of us, day in and day out, does what we darn well please. We don't want a boss. We don't want a king. We don't want a lord. We want to do what we want because we want to do it. Even though he gives us every breath, he gives us every good thing, the rain that pours down on us, even though his glory is displayed around us, we don't want to honor him, we don't want to thank him, we act as little gods, as little kings, as little rulers. And he's angry. And judgment is coming for those who oppose God. And yet, Christmas, or what we celebrate at Christmas 2,000 years ago, we learned something else. In giving his son, while God is opposed to us, while God is opposed to our sin, while God is fully prepared to punish and damn sinners, he is for us. He is for us. What greater gift could he give? What greater demonstration of God's love, of God's commitment to redeem us? He could give us money. He could give us wealth. He could give us long life. He gave us his son. And Paul's entire argument assumes there is no greater thing. He says, not only is God for us, but he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's logic assumes if God gives us the best thing, the most wonderful thing, the most costly thing, how will he not also give us all these minuscule, unimportant, measly things? Of course he will. God is for us. We also learn through the incarnation, God will give us the things we need. Because the thing we most needed was a Savior. I know some of you have health issues. You may think the number one thing you need is a cure. Some of you may be unemployed. You think the number one thing you need is a job. Some of you may be single and think the number one thing you need is a boyfriend or girlfriend. Those those can all be valid needs. The number one thing we need is a Savior a substitute for sin, an atoning sacrifice. We need the lamb that God would and did provide it, would provide. That's what we need. God has given us in his son the thing we most need, the one we most need. And we can also be confident he will give us all the other things we need as well. But but don't miss that. We can be so caught up and so earthly-minded in all the things we need here and now Things that are valid. Pray for a job. Pray for a spouse. Pray for, pray for health and, and curing of disease. But understand, those are unimportant things compared to our need of salvation. 
Don't, don't live this life so busily caught up in the, oh, look at this, and oh, look, and we need that you miss out on the biggest thing. You and I are headed towards face-to-face encounter with a living and holy God. The book of Hebrews tells us it's appointed unto man once to die, and then comes judgment. We are going to face the living God. And you and I, every day, do what we want. We, we resist our conscience which we don't even need the Bible to know right and wrong. We, we resist our conscience. We resist the things that we know are wrong, and we do it anyway, and we stack up and store up God's wrath. It's Paul's language. We are storing up for ourselves. There's a storeroom, and it's just filling up and filling up and filling up with wrath. Except God is for us, and God gave us His Son. And all that wrath that you and I have been storing up would one day be born by the Son of God. Not only did God give up His Son and the fellowship with His Son that was in heaven, fellowship that was so sweet, so wonderful, that in John 17, Jesus cries out, Father, I long for the glory that I had with you before the earth began. There was a glorious, joyous relationship face-to-face with the Father. That ended for a time when the Son entered into time and space. And God gave His Son, and the Son and the Father endured that lack of fellowship or that lessening of fellowship. And, and I'll fully admit, this is mysterious, inscrutable things. But something was lesser. Something was lacking. The Son was looking forward to, longing to, returning to that fellowship. But then on the cross, Jesus bears our guilt. He bears our sin. He absorbs God's wrath. He, he takes all of your and my sin upon Himself and satisfies the Father's wrath. Yes, God has given us what we most need. He will also give us all other things. Because of that, Paul says, God will not allow us to be condemned. (laughs) This is still the the best possible news. He then, in light of that, says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who? And this may not, again, be a big concern for you, Maybe you're very popular. Maybe you have lots of friends. Or maybe people like to blame you all the time for things. It doesn't matter. Because the reality is we have a spiritual adversary. And one of the most common names for that adversary in the Bible is the accuser. And so when you stand before God as if it weren't enough that that God himself being holy and being just would be fully prepared to meter out a sentence, there are angelic beings eager to condemn, eager to throw insults. The book of Zechariah, we see, see a picture of this courtroom setting and Joshua the high priest, he's just come out of Babylon, and there is Satan, the accuser, acting as a prosecuting attorney. And the wonderful news of the gospel, the wonderful news of God's gift in Zechariah and here is because God has given his son, the prosecution doesn't even get to make its case. God's redemption in his son, God's gift in his son is so full and so perfect. Accusations don't even get to be made. It's not as though accusations get made and then they get refuted. The prosecution doesn't even get to open its mouth. Who will bring a charge against God's elect, Paul says? And then he answers the question. 
It is God who justifies. And that's the fourth thing we see in the incarnation. God gives his son. We can be confident God is for us. God gives his son. We can be confident that if he gave him his son, he would freely give us all things. And because the son goes on to die for us, we can also be confident that God will not allow those of us who have turned to him and put our faith in him, who have turned from living our own way, who have turned from our sinfulness and Turn to Christ and embrace Him by faith that we will not be condemned. Why? Because God will justify us. God offers to freely justify each and every one of us based on the work of His Son. He just calls on us to surrender, to, to lay down our arms, as it were, and say, okay, I yield. I, I want to be your friend. I want to be restored. I want Jesus. I, I believe. The Bible is explicitly clear. Early in Romans, Paul contends that one is not justified by what they do. They aren't, we aren't justified. We aren't forgiven. Justified is just a legal term for forgiven. It's the notion of the courtroom of the verdict. And so when they stand before God at judgment, there will be a verdict either of guilty with punishment or there will be a verdict of innocent, justified. Because he gave up his son for us, no one can accuse us because he gave up his son for us. God will justify his elect, which makes it clear this isn't just something that happens to everybody. His people will be justified. And so, as we bring our thoughts on this to a close, understand at Christmas, we don't just celebrate the humility and the love and the obedience of the son. We do. And elsewhere, Paul will celebrate and, and ring those notes in Philippians. He, he humbled himself. He didn't hold on to his rights, and he made himself nothing. Amen. Those are wonderful truths. But tonight, I just wanted to look at the Father in heaven who gave us his Son, the Father in heaven who, who set aside that warm fellowship with his Son for a time and had to watch his Son suffer, suffer exposure and cold, suffer the pain of circumcision, suffer living among sinful, rotten people like you and me for 33 years, suffer on a cross. A father who did not spare his own son. When the time came, the father did not give him a hall pass. He did not give him a time out, but he poured out his wrath upon him for us. So I just want to close with... with how tragic it would be for us, not any of us, not to understand, not to have received, not to have believed, not to have turned in faith to Jesus. God has given us such a wonderful gift. But, but if you are not one of those who has, who has turned to Christ in faith, God is not for you. He is against you. And if you have not turned to the Son in faith, you have no promise that God will provide you all things. If, if you have not turned to the Son in faith, there is an accuser. God himself will accuse you. His word will accuse you. The devil will accuse you. God will not justify you. So, so Christmas and the incarnation can be the most wonderful and glorious truth or it can be a frightening truth. And I, I believe you've come out here on a Thursday evening I hope most, if not all of us, are those who are clothed in Christ, those who are God's elect, to use Paul's language. If you have any questions about this, please see me or one of the elders or any, any of the leaders in this church here afterwards. But we are gonna, these are wonderful truths for us. God is for me. God is for you. God will provide what I need. God will not allow me to be condemned. 
God will justify me, not because of who I am or what I have done, but because of His Son. The Lamb of God. God provided a lamb. I'm going to call my uh, instrumentalists up. We're going to play a song. It's from one of my favorite Christmas albums by Andrew Peterson, Behold the Lamb of God. And then we'll sing one final song. So you can stay seated as we um, sing the Lamb of God.